I invite you to open a Bible to the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 31 through 37. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Imagine that week after week you're sitting there under the ministry of the word of, from Romans 8, as an unregenerate person. That means a person who is not born again, does not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, has an old nature, not a new nature in Christ. You pretty much love what the world loves. Week after week, trust what the world trusts. Week after week, you love looking cool. You love being thought well of by other people. You love physical pleasures like sexual sensations and food and drink and maybe getting inside the skin of a TV soap sister every afternoon and living out some fantasies or going to some movie with its violence and its mind-battering suspense and walking out utterly untouched. And you keep on sitting there and you come back week after week. Something's drawing you back. A girlfriend. Boyfriend. Fear. Curiosity. Maybe a strange glimpse every now and then into your life that you don't get any other time. And you're not God's. You're not saved. You just sit there. I've given a lot of thought to what becomes of Romans 8, what becomes of the glory of the good news of these words in the minds of people like that. I think one of the answers to that question is they begin to feel okay about themselves. 
And that in the lavish grace and the lavish good news, they begin to feel content and affirmed in their pathway to hell. Sin and pride and rebellion and the love of the world. I want to do things my way. Don't anybody tell me how to sit or stand or eat or work or play or use my money. But they keep coming back. And as I lavish grace upon grace upon grace, the devil and sin begins to make them feel they're okay. They're safe. God's gracious. Paul had the same problem, didn't he? Remember chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? You can hear what he's dealing with behind his words. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Somebody was saying that. Just listen to how gracious the words are that Pastor Piper preaches and how God works everything together for good and how he takes all of our bad things and makes them good and how he fights for us and how he gives us everything we need. Oh, good, give me this. And may I just keep on living the way I'm living. Or, Romans 6.15, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Some were saying that. That kind of misuse of the preaching of the gospel of grace happens every Sunday in this room. I do not doubt. There's too many people here. There are 2,400 people in worship last Sunday. There are many, probably. I don't know how many who do that with what I say. It's such good news. I just feel better in my sin, in my rebellion, in my pride. I just feel better. Isn't it amazing what the devil and sin can do? Now, why do I begin this way even before I pray? And I am going to pray. Two reasons. One, I want to warn you. You who feel better about your life of unbelief because of the goodness of God. I'll say that again. You who in worship feel better about your life of disobedience and unbelief and sin and rebellion because God is good. And the warning is this. The saving, powerful promises of God to work all things together for your good are for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Nobody else. You cannot earn these promises. They're a gift. But you can prove that they're not yours by not loving the giver. Loving the giver reflected in the gift is not the earning of a gift. 
You can't earn the gift of Romans 8.28. You can love the God who makes the promise to sinners of Romans 8.28 and in loving Him, vindicate your participation in it. But you can also prove it isn't yours by walking out of here feeling affirmed in your sin and living just like the world with all of their values. You can prove they aren't mine. I'm on my way to hell. I don't care how good I feel about it on Sunday morning. That's a lie. But you can't earn it. It's a gift. You can only receive it from the one you love. Because of his beneficence to sinners. So that's my warning. That's my warning. I say it for one other reason. I want to say, I want to assert that I will not make the good news of these verses any less free or less powerful or less sweeping or less absolute or less God-initiated and God-sustained and God-empowered and God-glorifying or anything other than all-encompassing just in order to help unbelievers not abuse them. I will not make them sound less glorious for believers in order to keep unbelievers from misusing these texts. I will not do that. I will run exactly the same risk Paul runs with this little proviso put at the front end of this sermon. And after this comes glory. And if you want to take glory, layer it on top of your sin and rebellion and walk out feeling good. Oh, God, help you. Now I'm ready to pray, I think. So let's pray. So, Father... I'm just about to lay out another way of saying the unspeakably good. And I'm so eager not to make people feel comfortable in the way to destruction. But to win them and lure them through faith in Christ on the path that leads to life. And so I'm asking, Father, here now that unbelievers, unregenerate church members or visitors or regular attenders who are not born of God, do not love the fellowship of Christ, do not long to become like Jesus, do not delight in his promises because the giver is so sweet to their souls. People who are just here layering religion on top of their basic love of television and money and sex and food and success and the praise of men, that, that those people would be changed, would be saved, would be broken, would be healed, would be filled That's my prayer as I begin to look now at verse 33. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are. And Paul continues marveling, doesn't he, at the security and the joys of believers. He's not saying these things in this chapter. He's not piling glory upon glory, work upon work. Marvel upon marvel, unspeakable promise upon unspeakable promise for himself. (laughs) He's doing this for you. He must think we are hard-headed. And we are. And one of the hardnesses will come out in this verse. And it's a sad one. He must think 
They're not getting it. They didn't get 28. I got to say 29. They didn't get 29. I got to say 30. They didn't get 30. I got to say 31. They didn't get 31. I got to say the glorious, all glorious peak of the mountain, 32. They didn't get 32. I got to say 33. We're not prone to believe this good news. I promise you we're not. You can tell by the way you live that you don't believe all things work together for your good. Did you murmur this week? Did you complain this week? Did you get depressed and discouraged this week? You don't believe it the way you should. None of us does. It's a battle. I don't claim to have arrived. I got discouraged this week. I probably said some unnecessarily critical things this week. And back up and say... God, help me to get my life in sync with the glorious truth of Romans 8. That's the battle. So here we are at verse 33. He's going to talk about no charge. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Why does he keep piling all of this up here? Let me give you a couple of big picture reasons before we look at the detail. Paul knows where he's going in this book, I think. He knows chapters 9, 10, 11 are coming. Chapters 12 through 16 are coming. And at the end of the unit 9 to 11, which is really the end of the unit 1 to 11, you get this magnificent, soaring doxology, which ends in verse 36 like this. And now, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And that's the end of the first 11 chapters of Romans. So he's... He's teaching these things in chapter 8 to get you there. Do you feel about your salvation and your life, your breath, your house, your job, your family, your faith? It's from Him. It's sustained through Him. It's all for His glory. You feel that in your bones. And if you do, you're getting it. You're getting it. That's what Romans 8 is about, to bring us to Romans 11.36, to say with the Apostle Paul, it's all from God. It's all sustained by God. It's all for the glory of God. It's not about me. It's about your glory and your fame. If you're getting that, you're with me. Here's a second reason why I think he's lingering and dwelling over the glories of these promises in Romans 8. He knows he's getting to chapter 12. You know, there's a great problem in preaching expositorily. We wrestled with this as guys in preaching class. This book was probably intended to be read on, on one Sunday morning. You know, they didn't have any books. They didn't have any computers. All they had was oral reading. So when Paul says to Timothy, don't neglect the reading, the word is probably oral reading in Scripture. Don't neglect the reading of Scripture. And I take a half a verse a week. And spend five years on the first eight chapters. And we haven't even gotten to chapter 12, which was intended to be the upshot of the whole thing. That's a major problem. My only way of solving it is to try to weave in applicatory words along the way. But let me just, let me just show you where he's going. Why does he want you to feel this morning no charge against me? No charge against me. Why does he want you to feel that? Because here's what's coming. 
He says at the beginning of Romans 12, I beseech you now. Because of these massive 11 chapters of mercy, utterly undeserved mercy and promises of future mercy, I beseech you, don't be like the world. Be transformed in your mind. Let love be genuine. That's verse 9. Let love be genuine. Give to the poor. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't return evil for evil. Bless those who curse at you, persecute you. Feed your enemy. Overcome evil with good. Live at peace with all people. That's a, a sampling of chapter 12. In other words, the Christianity is amazingly practical. Built on amazingly profound theological realities. Which is what we've been spending our time on all these months and years. So I will try to do better at weaving in, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, outdo one another in showing honor, be patient in tribulation, give to the needy, don't return evil for evil, bless those who persecute you, weep with those who weep, don't be haughty, make peace, feed your enemy, overcome evil. Oh, that we might experience the fruit of Romans 8. That's the fruit of the first 11 chapters. That's why he's writing it. So for two things, our transformed lives and God's glory, our joyful service, even if it's sacrifice and suffering and God's glory. That's where he's ending. Your joy, his glory. So here he goes, verse 33. Saying the almost unspeakable again. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Answer, nobody. It's the same as verse 31 with different words. Remember verse 31? Who is against us? Answer, nobody. And remember what we said? Lots of people are against me. Because verse 35 says, tribulation, distress, persecution. I'll leave out famine because... God does that, not man. Although man have a big part in it. I suppose I should leave it there, maybe. Nakedness. People can take your clothes. They did Jesus. Peril. Sword. All those ways in verse 35, people are against us. We're being killed all day long. We're counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Of course people can be against us. So what did we say last week? We said no. No. Because of Romans 8.28 and the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God and the love that he has for his covenant people, he takes all the designs of wicked men to be against us and in and through them he designs our good. And that will remove murmuring from your life if you believe it. You meant it for evil, Satan. You meant it for evil, Brother, sister, mother, father, colleague, God meant it for good. I orient on God. I will return good for evil. See the connection with chapter 12? If you don't believe that God can take the insult you received at work and turn it for your good, you will spend all afternoon seething on that. And that seething will come out sideways the next day in ways you don't plan. And you will be a lousy testimony to the God of Romans 8. But if you see in and through the pain that you received 
And it hurt. I'm not saying it didn't hurt. But the pain was refining fire from a holy good father so that you can now go back and actually let that person get in front of you in line again. You can smile. You can offer to go get the donuts at break time and make his jaw drop. Where do you have your hope? Why aren't you vengeful? I don't like you. Romans 8 is the answer to Romans 12. So it's thinking just like verse 31, but now it's verse 33. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? Answer, nobody. To which we respond, the devil does. Job 1, accuse Job. The devil does. Your own conscience brings charges against you. Jesus said, blessed are you when men persecute you and speak evil against you falsely. Rejoice in that day and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. He anticipated false accusations. Take Acts chapter 6. What happened to Stephen? How did Stephen get killed? The first Christian martyr. The most sweet, wonderful, angelic-faced Stephen is the first one killed. Why? False accusers. Chapter 6, verse 14. False accusers stood up and lied about him. And he got killed because of it. So, So what does Paul mean? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Everybody will bring a charge against God's elect. Same answer. They won't stick. They won't stick. That's what I think he means. No charge against God's elect will stick in the court of heaven. The chapter began, remember, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And now he says it another way. God's elect, no charge against them will stand. Now, hear this, all you who grew up in homes where all you got was charge against you after charge against you after charge against you with scarcely one encouraging word that you can remember. Hear me. You wounded and you angry. Hear me. And hear me, all you who are so burdened by your own self-indictments. You in this room who seem to be just wired to indict and indict and indict and indict yourself for whatever reason with its oppressive and paralyzing effects on your life. Hear me. And hear me, you, and sometimes they're the same people, who rarely, if ever, say a positive thing or a praising word or a thanking word. But instead, there seems to just come out of your mouth a stream of criticism, murmuring, Grumbling, griping, 
complaining till no one wants to be around you and you wonder why no friends. Romans 8, especially verse 33, is God's remedy and medicine and cure for the paralysis that comes from self-indictment, Satan indictment, enemy indictment, dad indictment, a world of coming down on you. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with it? Seethe, shrink, numb out, eat it, drink it, shoot it, because it hurts so bad? No, that's not what you're supposed to do. This remedy is no charge against you will ever stick. Let me say it another way. This remedy is the utterly undeserved free grace of never being charged successfully with any fault before God. Now take a deep breath and see if you can begin to believe this. I'll say it, I'll say it that way again. The grace of God in this verse is never, ever being charged successfully with any fault before God. I wonder if there are any believers in this room. I mean, isn't that just impossible to believe? Except by the grace of God. That you sinners sitting there in that pew and this preacher sinner standing here who must have five dozen faults every hour could believe and be so freed that I would treat others the way I'm now being treated by God. That no fault against me would ever be successfully made again in the presence of God. None. I mean, it just takes your breath away. If we could believe it, if, if God could come down now on this room and free you from the 10,000 charges made against you as a child who should have had some also encouragements along the way, that God is for you in Christ Jesus and that he's given you a life to live with fruitfulness and significance and the gifts are unique and that he means to take them and make them his own for your joy and his glory. That message never got through as a six-year-old and a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old and a 15-year-old. And I'm asking for a miracle in this room that in one sermon... In one hour, God would break through all of the layers of hopelessness. And that's the issue. Because if you could just have hope that he were for you, the liberty would be astonishing. And it's his word, it's not mine. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Answer, nobody. No charge is going to stick. Why did he say God's elect? 
Why do you use the phrase elect? Who should bring any charge against, he could have said, believers or those who are in Christ. That's what he said in chapter 8, verse 1. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But here he says, no condemnation or no charge is going to stick against God's elect, chosen ones. Why do you say that? He said it in order to call to our minds all the glory of verses 29 and 30. You are foreknown, foreloved, meaning chosen and elect, and therefore predestined to be like Jesus for Jesus, therefore called out of darkness into light, out of death into life, out of arrogant unbelief into humble belief, and therefore justified, declared righteous with the righteousness of Christ, and therefore glorified. He wants us to remember all that in the words, God's elect. It's not just a name. It's just, just a, it's not just a label. It's a massive, from eternity to eternity, God does this for you. Chooses you, destines you, calls you, justifies you, glorifies you. Know this. He's for you. No charge brought against you. I mean, imagine yourself walking with a Supreme Court justice as a little child and some little pick-squeak lawyer comes up and says, you're guilty, you're guilty. And Justice Thomas says, this was settled. The charges are dropped. See you later. And you're, you're little... And you, you just, you're nobody. You are nobody. But oh, how happy you are to be that nobody. With your justice saying, they dropped. I am the top court. So that word elect is real precious here. Because God chose to do this a long time ago for you and draw you in. One last question. The answer that he gives is not expressed, right? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Answer, nobody. And then comes the reason. God is the one who justifies. So, out of all those five steps of salvation that God performs, foreknowing, predestining, calling, justifying, glorifying, he picks this one. Justifying. And he focuses in on it now in verse 33 to show that no charge can be made to stick against God's elect. Is that right? That's not right. He doesn't do what I just said he did. He does not focus on justification in the last part of verse 33. What does he focus on? He focuses on the God who justifies. It's as plain in English as it is in Greek. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Let me say it out loud. God is the one who justifies. That's what he's saying. He's, he could have said, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Nobody. We're justified. He could have said that. That's true. That would have been helpful. That's not what he said. Why? Why did he say, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? God is the one. God is the one who justifies. Why do you say it like that? And I think you've already heard it and seen it. 
He didn't say it like that because in the context of laws and courts out of which all this language comes, suppose some peon judge in Palestine or in Rome says, not guilty. And some governor says, he is too guilty and we'll put him on trial this way. Then what good would the verdict at the lower level be? Useless. Or suppose this governor, a pilot or whoever type person says, oh, we'll just, uh, we'll just let these charges drop. They had incredible leeway to do what they wanted to do. We just let Barabbas go free, right? You just take a criminal and poof, just throw him out in the public. I mean, these guys could do anything they wanted to do. And so you've got this nice vindication from a pilot level governor. So what? If the emperor says, no way, he's guilty. You see where I'm going? It is God, not an emperor, not a governor, and not a peon judge who says, no condemnation. It is the highest court. After God, nobody steps in and appeals. Nobody steps in and says, uh, mistrial, got to do this thing over again here because you didn't get it right, God. That's what he's saying in the way he words verse 33. Who shall bring any charge? Answer, lots of people. But none of them are going to stick. Why? Because here we are in the courtroom of heaven. God is on the bench. We have utterly ruined our lives. We know that we are as guilty as can be. The worst sentence would be a just sentence. We're miserable and sitting at the table. And then... To the gasps of everybody in the courtroom, the judge says, the charges will be dropped. Some of you came into this room looking into a future that was just dark as it could be. Just like that defendant in that courtroom. He knows he's guilty. There's nothing ahead of him but forever in prison and maybe the electric chair and after that hell. And he's just done for. And so life is empty and meaningless and you might as well eat, drink and be merry, which is where our sin comes from, unbelief. And then suddenly, in this room now, perhaps God would speak through this verse in my mouth and say, your charges are dropped. You came in with them, you don't have to go out with them. Take a deep breath. The charges are dropped. So now let me close with one more application. Whose approval do you want this morning and this afternoon and the rest of your life? Whose approval are you deeply, deeply craving? Let's just think about that. And I'll be honest, I, I, I have relationships in my life where I want people to be affirming to me. I do. But it's, it's not an issue of that kind of wanting. It's an issue of what, what's driving you? What's holding you? What's controlling you? What do you wake up with and go to bed with and seethe with? What, who do you want to really like you? Say nice things about you, affirm you. Now, with that answer in mind, God says to you out of this text this morning, 
In Jesus Christ, my son, I approve you. I count you righteous. I affirm you and love you as my holy child. I'll read that sentence again. In Jesus Christ, unbeliever, it's not yours. It's intended to win you to faith. Not leave you out there, not exclude you, win you, draw you. Just trust him. See how glorious and attractive this Savior is, that to sinners he makes such promises. In Jesus Christ, that is in relation to him, by faith in him, my son, God says, I approve you. I count you righteous. I affirm you. I love you as my holy child. Should this affect your feelings as you go to work tomorrow? Whose approval do you want and whose criticism do you fear? How much craven people-pleasing there is in the world. Oh, let Christians be free from craven people-pleasing. Second-handers, always wondering, how did, how did that sentence come across? Do they like my clothes? Did I say it right? Always in bondage to other people's opinions. Oh. Be free. Why? So that you can be a kind of arrogant stoic walking around above all the clueless peons while you step on them, not caring a rip for their opinion. Is that the point? Am I just trying to make stoics out of everybody who don't give a rip about what you're a rock? That's the way the stoics used to talk in Paul's day. We're a rock. Go ahead. Slap me. I didn't feel it. And in doing that, make make them to be nothing. Is your goal to make nothing out of your critics by not being, not feeling their smacks? That's not the goal. You know what the goal is? To be so freed from self-occupation and so full of God's affirmation in Christ that you love them. Stoics didn't love their enemies. They did not love their enemies. They hated their enemies. But they wouldn't fight their enemies because it made them look beholden to their emotions, which the enemies took charge of by provoking them. You see, there's a lot of people in America who want to kind of be cool that way. I'm not asking to be cool. I don't I don't think Jesus likes coolness. I'm asking you to fall out of love with coolness into childlike servanthood. That is so loved by a father who's got you in his arms, so affirmed by a judge who says no charge against you will stand. I don't care what they say, that you are so wrapped up in those things when you go to work tomorrow that if somebody ignores you or flips you the finger on the way there or puts you down with some little sideways comment in a board meeting. Or rolls their eyes at your Bible on your desk. You will not be paralyzed. You will not feel put down. Your whole heart will be, he is for me. And he is the God of all, the ruler of the universe. Oh, let me love these people who are so needy. That would be wonderful. That would be wonderful. So my exhortation and God's exhortation, I speak it on his behalf, is remember 
that God is for you and that no charge, no charge from your own conscience, from the devil, from an enemy, from your father, will stick against you in Christ Jesus. And therefore, fear the accusations of no man and love the good of every man. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.